Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks, a new podcast brought to you by the Walkley Foundation featuring some of the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Today, we are delighted to bring you this presentation from Lise Doucette with the support of BBC World News Television and BBC World Service Radio. On a recent visit to Sydney for the Walkley Foundation's Storyology event, Lise spoke about the power of story and movingly about her experiences reporting on war-torn Syria. She is introduced in this talk by the ABC's Philippa MacDonald. This cassette is the Chief International Correspondent for BBC World News and the BBC World Service. An award-winning correspondent who played a key role in the BBC's coverage of the Arab Spring across the Middle East and North Africa. Born in Canada, Liz flew the coop to spend 15 years as a BBC foreign correspondent with postings to Jerusalem, Amman, Tehran, Islamabad, Kabul and Abidjan before joining the BBC's team of presenters in 1999. These days, Lise is regularly deployed to anchor special news coverage from the field and interview world leaders. And she's a familiar face in crisis zones, most recently Syria. She's covered all the major stories in the region for the past 20 years, including major natural disasters, including the Indian Ocean tsunami and Pakistan floods. Lise is part of a strong lineup of international journalists covering more countries than any other broadcaster. Her work can be seen on BBC World News, available on Foxtel, providing impartial and in-depth international news. Lise Doucette knows better than anyone how to tell a powerful story that resonates across borders. And we're delighted to have her here to share her experience as a global reporter and presenter living the story. Welcome, Lise. Good morning. Good morning, Australia. It is so great to be in your great country. And in fact, I was so excited when I arrived in the early hours of the morning on Tuesday that I immediately tweeted a photograph of the Sydney sunrise. And then I tweeted the sensation of arriving in a city just as the city is coming to life. And then I tweeted a story about that big, beautiful sign that you have at Sydney International Airport that says, G'day, welcome home. And in fact, my enthusiasm must have been so palpable that immediately someone tweeted from the other side of the world and said, are you Australian? with four question marks. And such is Twitter that within seconds, someone tweeted from another side of the world in French and said, no, no, elle est canadienne, with four exclamation marks. Australian or wannabe Australian, it's terrific to be here at the Storyology Conference. What an exquisite name to give to a gathering and organized by the Walkley Foundation. And I have to tell you that in my long career, through many of those years, I spend a few days every year 
sharing the anticipation, the anguish, and the agony of an Australian colleague who wondered and worried whether they would win the prestigious Walkley that year. And so when I received an invitation from the Walkley Foundation, I thought, should I take my revenge? Or should I take it as a compliment to come here and be part of this gathering? And what is it about? About telling stories. So let me start with a short story, because the time is short. So I'll tell it on Twitter. Once upon a time, not so long ago, there was a poor but pretty girl who married her prince, who was handsome and rich, and they lived happily. 140 characters. <laughs> they have to live happily ever after. Okay, if I take out the ands and I make ever after one word, it fits like this. Once upon a time, not so long ago, there was a poor pretty girl who married her rich, handsome prince, and they lived happily ever after. End of story. Fairy Tales 2.0, brought to you by the most modern means of storytelling. Why would anyone want to tell any other kind of story? Once upon a time, not so long ago, when we were young, we loved all those fairy tales, and they, they're delicious, happy endings. And then we grew up, and most of us became journalists. And then, as the saying goes, we looked for bad stories, or bad stories looked for us. And our stories didn't always have happy endings, and the people in them weren't that pretty, not that handsome. But many were very rich, and many were very poor. Because it is stories and storytelling that makes us all human. Since time immemorial, it is the storytelling that has connected us, that has kept us going. Before the invention of the telephone or the typewriter, our ancestors passed our stories from mouth to mouth, from family to family, from village to village, from generation to generation. Stories that captured the imagination and kept us listening. Stories much longer than 140 characters, or a short post on Facebook, or a video on some social server. But there is still this intensity, this immediacy about our modern media that keeps us engaged, that is so tantalizing and so tempting. And why is this? It is in part because there is always an audience. That we know that when we post a tweet or a post or a video, someone somewhere is going to respond from somewhere in the world. And that is why, for us, more traditional media like the BBC, 
we no longer expect you to just to sit there and watch and listen to us. We want you to engage. We want you to answer back, to tell us your stories, to send us your comments, or send us your complaints. Because it reminds us that the beauty and the power of a story is that it must be told. One of my country's best-known writers, Margaret Atwood, wrote it like this in one of her novels, The Handmaid's Tale, and I quote, if it's a story even in my head, I must be telling it to someone. You don't tell a story only to yourself. There's always someone else, she writes, even when there is no one. Do you remember as children when we would invent these imaginary friends to tell our deepest and darkest secrets? And of course, there was the BFF, the best friends forever. We told them everything. And a few days before I arrived in Sydney for this Storyology conference, I received a message on social media from one of the Walkley's team, and that was Flip Pryor. And so that meant I read her bio. And what does it say? She calls herself a news and gossip hound. Scandalously delicious. But I always thought that when you get down to it, isn't it just the same? That maybe back there in the back row, someone is whispering to their friend, did you hear what Mary did? No, she did? Yes, she said, and then he said, oh. And then on the other side of the room, someone is leaning over to say to his or her friend, did you hear what the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad said to the UN envoy Lakhtar Brahimi? Really? No. But did you hear what the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov said to the Australian prime minister Kevin Rudd? No. We all want to know what is happening in our world. No matter how we define our world, whether it's a very small world, of our friends and our family, whether it's the news of our city, our country, or the wider world. And as a BBC broadcaster, I would say it is the wider world that we all inhabit, whether we know it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not. It is, as that saying goes, that when a butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the world in New Jersey, it causes a storm here, even today, in New South Wales. We are all connected. But the stories of our world and of our time are hard to tell, and they're hard to hear. They're not fairy tales, and they don't have happy endings, ever. And they're also the stories that don't have the beginnings that we expect, the once upon the time. And they don't have the endings that we can expect with any certainty. Take the last few years in the Middle East, in the historic moment that's come to be known as the Arab Spring, 
a chronicle that so few people expected, of a people rising up to remove an authoritarian ruler. And in Tunisia and in Egypt, they did it peacefully. And what an extraordinary story it was. And I'll never, ever forget the euphoria of the 18 days in Cairo's Tahrir Square, where people made their own history and they inspired the world. Where they removed a president, Hosni Mubarak, with a little push from the army. Or the bliss that we felt along Habib Bouriba Avenue in Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, the jasmine revolution. You could smell the jasmine. You could taste the excitement. In fact, you couldn't walk down Habib Bouriba Avenue without someone stopping you on the way and saying, I want to tell you what I think, and then stopping mid-sentence to, to say in astonishment, I can't believe I'm talking to you. I've never been able to express my views before. Because in Ben Ali's Tunisia, expressing your views would land you in prison. And the rallying cry right across the region, so intoxicating, was we have lost our freer. And people marched together, chanting it, holding the flags up high, marching into the tanks and into the tear gas, boldly taking on the troops. And in Libya, they fought them. And there was bloodshed. And a year later, it was their fingers they held up high, a finger that they dumped into indelible purple ink and proudly said to the world, I have voted. I have voted for the first time in the freest elections my country has ever seen. And then the story became across the region of the freest and fairest elections bringing to power Islamist parties in Egypt, in Tunisia, a share of power in Libya, and much the same across North Africa and the Middle East. And now it was a story of reconciling political Islam with Islamic principles. And where are we now? It's a different chapter. In Egypt now, the elected president, Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood is in detention, along with other members of this Islamist movement. And the protesters, are taking to the streets again, but the streets are divided. And they're taking to the streets in Tunisia as well. And on some days, the streets are bloody. We didn't know how this story would begin, and we still don't know how it will end. Perhaps we're on the third or the fourth chapter of this story, because it's an epic, a hard story to tell, a hard story to understand. And the hardest of all is Syria. Because Syria is a war, a story of war. So for just a moment, let me take you away from your comfortable seats in this lovely setting in your beautiful city on a balmy, rainy winter's day and take you to Syria to a war that is a civil war, a sectarian war, a proxy war, a new cold war, a war on childhood, 
a humanitarian crisis. And I have always found in my storytelling, that is journalism, that in order to tell a very big and complicated story, it's best to go to the smallest and the simplest of tales, to the granular details of daily life. And from those threads, you can weave a wider canvas of a more complicated tale. So every time I've gone to Damascus in the past two and a half years, I've gone back to the same place, to the neighborhood of Barzay, a suburb in the north. And if you'll allow me, I'll tell you a story about Barzay, because for me, it is the story of Syria. The first time we went to Barzay, we went on Friday, after Friday prayers. And at that moment across the Middle East, in places where people had lost their fear, it was a time for people to take to the streets, but not in Syria, not at that time, in 2011. And when the people, mostly the men, came out of the mosque, they quickly surrounded us, the rare presence of a foreign television crew. And in the crowd, there were the plain clothes intelligence people, and no one wanted to speak. And one man came up beside me and whispered in my ear, look, look down the road. And not looking at him, I said, what is there? He said, the troops are there. Are you scared, I asked? Yes. And then another man summoned up the greatest courage that day, and he scribbled in haste on this piece of paper, and I've kept it till this day. And what did he write in English? Thank you. But no one can make a meeting with you because the army is in the other street and all people are afraid of them. Six months later, we went back to Barsay. We went back to the mosque and back to that road. And a few men, old men on crutches, were coming out of the mosque and they said, don't talk to us. Go down that road and talk to the young people. And we looked down that same road, and there were no troops. And we could see people motioning to us, come inside. And we did. And inside the warren of streets, the neighborhood, where six months earlier we said that people were too afraid to even say they were afraid, had lost their fear. The men, the women, and the children flooded the streets, shouting anti-Assad slogans. And they took us deep inside to a house which was once a base of the opposition free Syrian army, except it was now riddled with bullets and charred and gutted. It had been the focus of fighting. Six months on, we went to Barzay again, and the story was different. The soldiers stopped us at the mosque and said, you can't go inside. It's peaceful, they said. Nothing is happening. And I looked down that road, and no one beckoned us in. It was empty and silent. But Barse found a way to make itself heard, because suddenly it was that mosque that started speaking. On the loudspeakers, they began to announce the funerals, listing the names of the dead that had died in the battles that week. 
And I amble down that empty road, just with a microphone on my own, just far enough so the soldiers would not be suspicious. And a woman and her young son hurried by. And with the basic Arabic, I said, Salam, Chief Warda, how is the situation? And the woman quickly said, Tamam, Kulti Tamam, everything is okay, with a nervous glance at the soldiers at the checkpoint. And her little son summoned a courage way beyond his years, and he said, Mommy, tell her the truth. Tell her what's happening in Barzay. They're coming with the helicopters every night, and they're bombing our houses. We are so afraid, and we're pleading with them to stop. But they didn't stop. Last month, I went to Barzay. And in that part of the neighborhood, there is nothing to see. It's flattened. And the little boy, I don't know if he lived. But his courage on that day will live in my memory. And the courage of Syrians that I have met, young and old, on all sides of this war. Because Syria now is a divided society, divided in its loyalties, divided dangerously. And across the country, there are other neighborhoods like Barzay, which are dead, dead because of the fighting. More than 100,000 dead and still counting. And yet, in telling the story of Syria over the past two and a half years, I have found that often it's the children's stories, the children who speak with such rawness and blunt honesty and directness that somehow give me, in the midst of this tragedy, some hope and also humanity. So let me finish today with a story of another young Syrian I met in a refugee camp in Lebanon. We'll call her Rhonda. And Rhonda was a girl of 12 years old with a long braid down her back who nervously turned her fingers like this when she told me her troubled tale. I saw my friend Hulud die before my eyes, she said. And then with that kind of detail that children often use, she said the bullet came and it went through Hulud's cheek and it came out her neck. And she died in a pool of blood before me. Hulud, her best friend. In Arabic, Hulud means eternal. Hulud died when she was 12. And Rhonda's own house had also been hit by some kind of missile. And a wall in the house collapsed on top of her father, her mother, and her younger brother. And her mother said, Alhamdulillah, thanks be to God, we all survived. But after Hulud died, the family decided to leave. And I said to Rhonda, you're a brave girl at 12 years old. What do you want to do when you grow up? And without a moment's hesitation, she said, I want to be a lawyer, and I want to get people out of prison. 
And I moved on to the next question, but my mind lingered on the last. Why would a 12-year-old girl talk about being a lawyer to get people out of prison? And I said, Rhonda, why did you say that? And she spoke with the voice of a 12-year-old girl and a maturity beyond her years. My two older brothers, she said, went to prison. And when they came out, they couldn't walk. Once upon a time, not so long ago, most of us knew children who lived, or at least read the stories, of sugar-coated fairy tales and happy endings. But it's not always that way. At a children's play center in Damascus, when they asked the children, what would you like to be when you grow up? A lot of the children wrote on a piece of paper, we just want to grow up. We just want to live. These children are storytellers too. They want to tell us their stories. They want to be heard. And stories, storytelling, can have power. It can change someone's life. It can change the world. So go out and find your stories. Tell your stories and tell them well. But listen as well to the people who hear your stories. At the BBC, we call it living the story. Because nobody ever leaves a good story. And a good story never leaves you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to that Walkley Talk. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter, at Walkleys, and on Facebook for new episode updates and you'll be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.